Welcome to the Hope CC Resources Podcast, where we revisit sermons, talks, and discussions from the archives of Hope Community Church in Minnesota. If you would like to find more resources from Hope Community Church, please visit hopeccresources.com or download the Hope CC app. Today's resource is a message by Pastor Korsha Molesky called Lust, Dealing with the Dragon Within. It was originally given on July 7th, 2013 as part of the series Gospel Sexuality, Good morning. My name's Cor. I'm on the pastoral staff at Hope. Summer's a weird time. All sorts of people show up on our doorstep, people I haven't seen in quite a while, and it's really fun. All, all sorts of visitors. If you're new with us, I want to welcome you. Uh, we are in a series on gospel sexuality, just as kind of a, a warning. If you have little ones in tow, just a, uh, a word of warning there. A little bit about myself. I, I, got, I graduated from the University of Minnesota with a degree in mathematics. And so when, when Tim speaks up here of, of bands, I've never heard those bands. I don't, I don't do music. <laughs> Equations. Yes! Yes! But today I bring you a poem. <laughs> All right? The dragon. I found a dragon on my step, small and agile. Please stay a while. Every day we'd take a walk. Master and pet. Why the cold sweat? And then I saw he held the leash, tall and vile. I've got no file. I found a dragon on my step, false-hearted foe who, who will never let go. And today we are talking about the dragon, which is lust. And that dragon being primarily, though not exclusively, but, but primarily within that this is a battle that we fight within. Perhaps you've seen this verse from 1 Thessalonians that says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so this dragon of lust or this, this um, beast that we're trying to fight, we're actually focused on something greater, which is Likeness of Jesus, that you and I, as we come to him through the cross and belief and faith, that then he sets us on a new journey, a new trajectory of life, which is becoming more and more like his son in thoughts, in affections, in behaviors, that it's his desire for us to be sanctified, to be made more like Christ over and over and over, deeper and deeper and deeper. The concern I have is that some of you may be reading this verse. That doesn't appeal to you. Why? Because what stands out in this verse is that part at the end that says, there is this passion of lust that the Gentiles enter into. The Gentiles are those who do not know God. And so some of you, the struggle is so great, the waves crashing in are so overwhelming that you're tempted to believe, maybe I don't know God at all. Maybe I've grown beyond his ability to grasp and secure me for his purposes. Some of you, that lust struggle is just so prominent, so day day in and day out a part of your life that you see this passage and you don't have joy or hope, but you have dread and concern because you're not succeeding. You find yourself tripping and failing often. And so I hope that in our time together, You're able to hear the gospel again, which is able to save you and is able to bring forth 
sanctification in your life. That you, where you're at, God loves you. You're not beyond His grasp. He's able to meet you there and bring you forward for His namesake. Like I mentioned, we're in a series on gospel sexuality. The sermons that have been preached at this point are online. I want to direct you there. If you have questions, comments about uh, maleness and femaleness, about the point of sex, um, uh, about uh, same-sex attraction, about singleness. We've dealt with a number of different topics. want to point you to that. But today we're going after the topic of lust. And as I was uh, in my office and looking into this topic, I found, strangely enough, motivation and inspiration in a weird place. It's, it's a book by Stephen Pressfield called Do the Work. Anybody, anybody read this book, heard of this book? Nobody at first service. Nobody at second. I'm overjoyed. I have found something that no one's heard of. This is amazing. This is fantastic. I have a thrill within me. I get to expose you guys to the beauty of Stephen Pressfield's work. Um, but this is a book, for those of you that are artists, and you, and you kind of have an idea for something, and then you want to bring that to delivery, you want to share that with the world, you actually want to develop it, you know, and do all of that artistic s- stuff. It's a technical thing. Uh, and, and actually bring it forth to the world. This is a book for you. It's aimed at helping you overcome the resistance that you face in being an artist. And I had one guy come after the service just like, I need that book. What's that book again? Who's that? Um, this, this is in, uh, specifically for artists, helping them to overcome resistance that they find in this creative, creative enterprise. And strangely enough, several of the principles that he grabbed onto in this book about resistance in the artistic um, presentation and creation, I find is very similar to our uh, fighting sin and engaging with God's word and trying to live for him. I mean, listen to this, okay? Now, read, read along with me here. He's going to talk about this resistance and just amazing how much it parallels some of the struggle we find in the Christian life, okay? Welcome to hell. Now you're in the expletive, all right? So I got, I got no sense that this guy is a believer or understands things of faith. Uh, but th- listen to some of these principles. Principle number one, there's an enemy. We've been conditioned to imagine that the darkness we see in the world and feel in our own hearts is only an illusion, which can be dispelled by the proper care, the proper love, the proper education, and the proper funding. It can't. Principle number two, the enemy is implacable. The enemy is intelligent, protean, or um, uh, able to change and adapt to your strategies, inextinguishable, and utterly ruthless and destructive. Its aim is not to obstruct or to hamper or to impede. Its aim is to kill. Doesn't it sound like he's talking about sin? Like this sounds almost biblical in its presentation. He's just talking about resistance within the creative imagination of the artist. It's like, that's, that's fascinating. Number three, the enemy is inside you. You can board a spaceship to Pluto, which when I was younger was a planet. Uh... Maybe that wasn't in the book there. And you can take take a spaceship to Pluto and settle all by yourself into a perfect artist's cottage 10 zillion miles from Earth. It will still be with you. The enemy is inside you. 
Skipping over is principle number four, jumping number five. The real you must duel the resistance you. I mean, this is Romans chapter seven stuff. On the field of the self stand a knight and a dragon. You are the knight. Resistance is the dragon. So there you can see his premise. There is no way to be nice to the dragon or to reason with it or negotiate with it or beam a white light around it and make it your friend. The only intercourse possible between the knight and the dragon is battle. The contest is life and death, mano a mano. And he's talking about art. (laughs) It's like, this is violent. And it's just like, this is just how you take an idea and bring forth a creative enterprise, like a book or a movie. It's like, wow, this is crazy. But I think it, it depicts well our battle and what stands in front of us when dealing with this topic of lust. This is serious. The enemy is inside you. You is it. So this, when we talk about lust, we're talking primarily about that which happens in your heart and mind. Wrapping our minds around this battle that's taking place within us. It can be tempting to to think of battle being out there in other people and other situations, but I want to give attention to heart and mind today as we consider this, this topic of lust. So let's Let's turn to James chapter 1. We're going to look a little bit about the progression of sin. It's in your uh, insert, which you got in your worship folders. You came in. There's there's sermon notes so you can follow along. But we're going to talk a little bit about the progression of sin and really try to hone in on where lust and temptation happens. And then I want us to spend some time walking through the gospel, but maybe in a way that you haven't uh, to date. You're very familiar with the paradigm. It's something we talk a lot about at hope. Um, So let's go to James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. It reads, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So theologically, get your picture of God straight here about truth. God is not tempting you. He's not tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Okay, so where's the origin of this? What's at stake here? What's going on? Verse 14, each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do you see that progression of this, this origin? Where is it? Your desires. You see something. You like, you want, you take. And we see just how it's paralleled with this idea of natural birth. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And I want to I just put up a couple columns in front of you. In some ways, I agree with a lot of what I read this week. But I, I want to highlight a couple ways that I didn't disagree with some of these Christian commentators. Um, Many looked at lust and just said, well, there's really any desire. And then they kind of went on with their spiel. And I was just like, wow, any desire, any desire. I want to I hold out this possibility of you, your attention being grabbed by something and you actually appreciate it. Let's say, let's say you're, you're walking down the street, something catches your eye, a tree, beautiful tree. Now the next thing that catches your eye is not a, a pretty tree, but a pretty woman. Is it possible, I'm just asking the question, is it possible that something that grabbed your attention, 
you would actually bring forth a natural, healthy, holy response of, beautiful. I recognize that it can spiral out of control. I recognize that. But I'm talking, is there room for healthy desires, healthy appreciation of beauty? Is that possible? Is it possible that there would be, with this appreciation, a recognition of that which is healthy and holy, God-honoring desires and responses? Something comes across your path, you look at it, you go, just beautiful. And that, that could actually then result in praise given to God for creating beauty. And if, if circumstances are healthy, and you could do this, maybe even a, a compliment? Like, could you actually compliment somebody? Like, beautiful shirt or hair? I, is there room for like complimenting? Just like healthy, God-honoring, just like, is that, maybe not. Ah, just, okay. So on one, one column there, just looking at it and just saying, man, health, natural, beautiful, holy desires. But like Romans speaks to, we've used this verse already in our series, but I want to remind us. Those healthy and natural can become unhealthy and unnatural. It says, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things or reptiles. So having this idea of healthy desires, natural beautiful and holy. Scripture does speak to the potential that these could become unnatural, unhealthy, unholy. How? You make an exchange. All of a sudden, you're not going to appreciate as God has designed, but then you're going to choose a different action, namely conceiving, infatuation or conception of sin and consumption of that which is not yours for your own benefit. And that would bring forth unnatural, unhealthy, and unholy responses. There's something about over here having attention and appreciation that I believe can result in glory and praise be given to God. But yet if we cross this chasm, this threshold, all of a sudden we exchange God for something else, something we want, maybe whatever the heck we want, without any regard for His word, His direction, His desires. Attention can become infatuation. Instead of appreciation uh, appreciation being given to God through gratitude, or even just a compliment, all of a sudden we consume that thing, that person, that image, for our own selfish benefit. It's inconsistent, and God says right here, you've exchanged the glory of God, my design, my desires for sex, for something else. I actually compare it to foolishness. Darkness is what it's called in the scriptures. And in between those two chasms, we have temptation. This is where battle is done. This is where we find ourselves, some of us daily, moment by moment, in the battle, in this chasm, we, we, we don't feel ourselves fully in this place of, of health and well-being and a holiness, yet we don't want to conceive of ourselves fully in this channel of consumption and just taking in unholiness. And so if you wanted to throw us in a channel, we'd probably put ourselves in this area of constant temptation to sin. So reading a book, uh, it was a book uh, about men... Um, 
It's not that lust is only a, a man's battle. I don't want to communicate that. But in this, in this book, it's called um, Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the Male Mind. And in this book, the, the, this is uh, coming from neurologists. And so the big premise that's being put forth is when we as men view pornography, it's actually like new, like imagine a forest. It's actually like new trails getting paved through a forest. That natural ways of thinking, actually you, you carve out new paths that are unnatural and you actually recircuit your brain. That's the premise of this book. And their contention is that when you're in this place of having trained yourself over and over again in your mind and in your heart and in your body towards this unnatural dark place of sin, that they would say that this, if this is your battle line right here, you're just about done. Because that line, that basically is just the screw it line. Just, I'm there, I might as well just, just who cares? And I would contend that where we want to have our battle line is on this end. Just at the first blush of like, I'm thinking about. Just at the first instance where you have kind of that tinge. Just that first passes, you know, that, that image passes across your mind and you think, what if? The battle line he, being drawn here, staying as close to God and His ways and His will and removing yourself as much as possible from that last line of defense is what this book would contend for. So what does it mean to lust? Through a conglomerate of different definitions, I boil it down to, to this. And this is actually greater. Maybe your struggle isn't sexual lust. Maybe lust can come at in a number of different forms. Um, but I, I, I went with the more expansive definition of lust here. It is to be deceived into indulging forbidden thoughts and desires, which may lead to misconduct. That last part after the comma, that can be cut off. But to lust is to be deceived into indulging forbidden thoughts and desires, thoughts uh, hitting at the mind, desires hitting at the heart, which may or may not lead to mis misconduct, bodily response. And I wanted to put in that piece of to be deceived. It's not in a lot of definitions, but I want to highlight both that we are within our culture fighting a battle for truth and goodness and beauty and love. All that is encapsulated in God and his desires for the world. Okay? So at the at just highest mountain, it's God. And when we are tempted to sin, we're failing to take God at his word. We're failing to uphold and believe him in the truths he's promoted and spoken chiefly in his word. So we have God communicating desires, truth, beauty, wisdom, how to live our lives. And anytime we venture away from that, there's deceit. We've bought into a lie. We've been duped. So we are deceived into what? Into indulging or saying yes. And that's where I really think we click over a line here. Something comes at us. Okay? Maybe what was started off as attention and appreciation, and you're thinking this is natural, this is holy, this is good. All of a sudden there's something in us that just says, uh, just want to tweak it, want to turn it, want to digest it, want to become a consumer. This indulgence, this infatuation 
This dwelling on the mind in a way that doesn't lead to appreciation and gratitude to God or compliment to the other, but it leads to self-satisfaction. So there's this indulging of forbidden thoughts and desires. Forbidden by whom? God. How do we know that? His word. So to lust or to, to reframe it to, to lust sexually is to be deceived into indulging Forbidden sexual thoughts and sexual desires, which may lead to sexual misconduct. I leave off the second part because um, being familiar with this struggle, I've recognized that there have been times in my life where the internal yes happens here, but then misconduct doesn't happen for maybe hours. So highlighting that the battlefront The battlefront is in heart and mind. Battlefront is at heart and mind. Let's go to Mark 7, verses 20 to 23. It draws out this point that the battlefront against lust and temptation is at heart and mind. It reads, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So remember what came just before this was a a conversation about unclean food, which is a a big uh, concept in the Old Testament that we need to Declare certain foods clean, certain foods unclean, and we don't digest, we don't eat the unclean foods. And now Jesus is recasting this with his New Testament teaching, and it says, For what comes out of a person, um, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, not what is ingested. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man or woman, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So it's re-articulating James 1. There's these desires, these affections, these thoughts that if we don't take captive, we don't keep watch of, they will throw us and we will follow them headlong into sin. But I really want to be clear about this. Because many times, you, maybe you as a Christian or, or churches that you've partaken in the past, they think, all right, the battlefield of lust is really one out there. The problem is out there. So if we can just set enough standards, if we can set up enough fence lines, if we can kind of get the right filters, then that will solve the lust problem. It, it's it's kind of like we just need a church of people that look like this. Just get everybody fully clothed and bundled up and then kind of our lust problem will disappear. This is the belief that the problem exists out there and not in here or in here. And I want to dispel that. I think the battlefront is in the mind and heart such that though somebody walks in front of your, your path that may not be modestly dressed, that your desires, the desires that are within you, don't bring forth these indulgences this consumption, this infatuation. So the battlefront being in the mind and the heart rather than on external factors, many of which we cannot control. We need to be well prepared in heart and mind to be able to go into the world in a way that seasons with salt and light. Look what Romans 8 says about this. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Who live according to the Spirit? Those who think about the things of the Spirit. 
And so as much as this is spiritual and, and many times when we're talking about God, it can feel very mystical. Yet God has ordained us to work within our brains and our hearts. Like it's, it's not, we can't make it so mystical as to not understand. Like, no, God has said, if you set your mind on th- something, we will bring forth a life that looks consistent with what you're thinking. And those who do not, those who by contrast set their minds on the things of the flesh, lust and sin, they're going to live that out. And so just trying to, again, highlight the battlefront of heart and mind. It doesn't mean that there can't be good things. Uh, I know a, a number of people that use internet filters and other, other things that will help, that will aid them in this fight. And yet I think if we're not speaking about heart and mind and the process of bringing our heart and mind into the likeness of Christ, more and more thinking His thoughts and feeling His affections, I think we're going to miss the battle. What I want to do now is walk the gospel road with you. Walk this, the gospel pathway. Um, this is something that, uh, as, as I've looked at all the different ways to handle this topic, uh, from looking at awesome passages in Ephesians and Colossians, I've looked at a number of different acronyms that people utilize in dealing with this and, and the struggle. What I want to take us back to is the paradigm of the gospel. The gospel being our pathway that will take us from struggle, temptation, uh, instances where we feel like we want to just just say, oh, screw it, I'm just going to sin. Okay, Taking us from that place through the struggle and bringing us to, out to the other side, which will can, be consistent with our sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness. And I want to do that. Uh, I looked up some different roads because I wanted to show... That this is a narrow little road. That's, that's Bible, right? Narrow little road to the gospel. And it, it has treachery on, on both sides. So you got to be careful. There's, there's one. Here's another one. Got to be careful of landslides. How about this one? Anybody Ice Road Truckers fans? Keep it on the road. Uh, you're going to be waiting for a long time to get towed out of one of the snow banks um, out there in the middle of nowhere. How about this one? Do you think that was Photoshopped? I was one. I was... That's, you got to be careful on that road. And then this one, this one, um, do you know what this is called? It, it has a real name, but it's become known as death road. It like, sadly, like I was doing a little bit of research on it and like, apparently it's, it's common for like hundreds of people to die on this road. And it, it must just, I didn't get enough time to know, like, is this, you is this the only road exist, you know, existing between two cities where you just have to take this one? It's the only one? I mean, it's a single lane road, and there's some mighty big trucks that go along, and then they have these little bypasses here and there. Um, but you can see this guy's stuck, and apparently close to falling off, so he's getting a tow. But then as I was looking at this, do you know where this picture came from? A travel agency. This, this, this picture, you can see by the, the corners. Look at the corners. It's like matted or whatever. It's like, this is, this is your invitation to come to Bolivia. Come explore Death Road. Like, you've got to be kidding me. It might be working, though, because these might be tourists right here. I don't know. There's people, there's people watching this semi being pulled out. But I want to talk to you about the gospel pathway, this gospel road 
that if you walk, and I believe that God can bring us from a place of temptation and struggle to, to continuing us on our road of sanctification with Him, not giving ourselves over to sin. And this, the truth of this, this is a member going back to our definition. Lust, what happens with lust? We're deceived. We're deceived into thinking something else will satisfy. Nothing satisfies like the gospel. And so this is, I want to walk through creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or I think I use glory for, for restoration. So this will, this will help. Why? Because this is something that I think many of you have heard us pitch at Hope a lot. The gospel. How? Creation, fall, redemption, glory. This is the big story of the Bible. This is the big story of Scripture. And I think it actually can be a paradigm, uh, 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 a road that we can walk through as we are tempted with sin and then this area of lust. And then you don't have to remember, you know, the acronyms and the five A's of battling lust. And you remember like three of them. Uh, you just remember this and walk through and fight sin. And so as I do, I'm going to have, you're going to see three columns. Okay. The one on the left will be too much. Too much gospel, really? Uh, I'll, I'll explain what that is in a little bit. <laughs> um, and on, on the right, too little uh, of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and then, uh, or sorry, glory, and uh, in the middle, just right. You know, so little three bears um, for you this morning. Easy to understand. All right, let's start with creation. Too much, just right, and too little. What I often, and, and this comes through a number of pastoring situations, um, People often will come and, and share their struggle with me, and I, I appreciate that. I appreciate having the chance to journey with people in their struggle with lust. But before they even sit down, many times I can just see it in their face. And, and, and just, it's, it's overwhelming at times. And after they share their story, many times they'll say, I've never shared that with anybody before. And it's my hope that, that we can do this gospel, and we can do this gospel in community with one another at Hope. And so as we're going through this, maybe just have in your mind and heart, like, what, what are the areas that I'm tempted to fall off this gospel road to the right or to the left? Just have that in mind. And I, and I hope that that narrow road of the gospel is, it proves satisfying for us as we, as we battle lust in our own lives. Too much in this area, I think, it is so tempting to make sex God. Our culture seems to be doing PR in such a way that makes sex God. Makes sex everything. And in some ways, um, we want to even fight against just that idea of like, hey, just get married. Why? So you can have sex. Like that's the only reason to get married. It's a great reason. Sex is great. But it's not as your God. So are you tempted to sometimes highlight this, this gift of God, this, this creator, this Lord and sustainer, this one who thinks about his creation and says, I want to bless them richly. Are you ever tempted to take one of those gifts and elevate it to the place of God? The Word, the Bible says, it will never fill in the way that God desires. Why? Because it was meant to be received as a gift, not, be, not replace Him as God. We talked about the point of sex a few weeks ago, but God created sex to be received as a gift and experienced at His direction for ever-increasing intimacy and benefit. That you, you squeeze the life out of that truth and it gives life over and over and over again. But if you hold up sex as your God, you will be let down. Sometimes we just, the, the physical appearance of people, just maleness and females in appearance, this, this two-dimensional image is held up almost as God and goddesses. That their bodies are almost to be worshipped because they're just impeccable. 
They take this, this idea of God's creation of body and just elevate it to, to a place that was not, never intended to hold. Putting too much emphasis on his creation. The other side would be just seeing humans as animals. Just, oh, we're the highest form of animals, so you got that going for you. But just this, this idea that, well, look up the definition of animal. Humans do that. And I think they don't understand the beauty of God's creation. The wonder. When it says, look what it says in, in, in uh, Genesis 1 about us being image bearers of God. Have you read this from uh, verse 27 here? God created man in his, own, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is, this is breathtaking stuff. If you, if you distill a person down to their physical appearance, you lose so much of what God intended when he created human people in his likeness and image. To think of this two-dimensional image, but no, no, no. There's, there's such a depth that if we could just conceive this. Many of you have heard this verse. This is not news to you. But have you taken time to consider the beauty and wonder of another human being that there's this relational, emotional, mental, and spiritual depth to people? It's fantastic. It's, it's incredibly beautiful to think that God would imprint and just brand us this like, image of God. Like, it's phenomenal. It's incredible. No, don't take, think of people too highly that they're gods and goddesses. I know Paul experienced that, right? Paul would heal somebody and they'd come down and worship him. He's like, I'm just a dude. That's in the Greek. I'm just a dude. <laughs> right? Peter goes forth and heals and they're like, well, what can we, what, how can we purchase this power that you have? Just like, no, no, I'm just a human being. Don't make me out to be something I'm not. But we're not animals. Something about image representation, image bearing of Almighty God that is spectacular. You bear the image of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's amazing. Do you see that on this gospel road? Do you understand that? That is the just right of creation. Let's turn to the fall. Sin is just too great. My struggle with lust is so overwhelming. You, you don't, Pastor, you don't understand. You don't get it. I've tried. I've tried everything and nothing's worked. And so you've bought into this idea that the fall and the effects of the fall and the curse are too great to be overcome. It's not true. It's just not true. We don't see that communicated in the Bible at all, that sin is too great. Conversely, there are some of us who believe that sin's no big deal. Our culture communicates sin, lust, sex, no big deal. Do it. Have it. And I think what we see in the Bible, speaking to just understanding the fall accurately, is that sin is real, and that it has consequences. We, we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Is that true or not? It's true. 
It happens. Okay, we read forward in, in Genesis 3. It happens. Disobedience to God and His Word brings forth sin. And through sin, death. And so now you and I are living Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, right now today. Do you take God at His Word? Do you believe that sin is real and that it has consequences? Or, no, no, I've done this behavior before. It's no big deal. There was no thunderbolt. Walking along, doing life with God in the present. And He comes to you and He says, Okay? You may eat of every tree. You may enjoy this life I've given you. My creation. Take and eat. Enjoy. Enjoy the richest fare. Appreciate it. All that I've given you. But these areas, these thoughts, those affections, I say no. Don't. Don't. They're forbidden. They will not bring forth the life that you're looking for or the life I desire to give to you. Do you trust them? Not do you know this verse or have you memorized this verse, but do you take him at his word when he says that? Do you trust him when he says, don't? Sin is real. Sin does have consequence. Some of which we can see. Some of which we can become aware of very quickly. Uh, uh, relationships are broken. Marriages are lost because of sin. It's very apparent. But many times, because this battle is being fought and won or lost in the mind and the heart, those areas can take so long to observe the consequences of sin in our hearts and in our minds. So we have God's creation on this gospel road. We have the fall on this gospel road. And we come to a place of redemption. Can you, can you actually have too much redemption? Can you have too much, too much gospel, too much Jesus? I want to be careful with, with my words here because I don't want to misrepresent um, the depth of the gospel. But I think what we see in those who hold to prosperity theology, this idea that redemption should come fully, that, that you should be blessed, in what ways? Name it. What do you want to be blessed in? This idea that God will bless you in whatever ways you see fit. Bless spiritually, give some money in the, the offering, and that will lead to a life of blessing where you will get a mate, where you will get a house. That there is this idea that theology of God in this manner taken to extreme can just say, your life is going to be great. I feel like, how many times have I heard Steve speak from this stage, from the stage over at the U of M, to choose a life in Christ is actually going to bring forth a harder life for you. How many times have I heard him stand up and say, this is not an easier life. Don't follow Christ because it's easy. But many times that can be espoused, even in this idea when we're talking about redemption, we're talking about the cross, that life will be made easy for those that follow Jesus. Too little. I see too little of the gospel and kind of this idea of self-improvement, self-help. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Just try harder. Do better. Stop sinning. Stop it. Just any number of gospel imitation. I want to give you an example of a gospel imitation. Steve and I had the chance to go to a conference um, 
This is years ago now, and, and it was a conference dedicated toward helping leaders bring forth generosity within their churches. So seems like a really noble desire, especially with Americans and, and just the, the, the vast wealth we have here in the States. And so we went down there, and, and one of the big taglines, one of the big slogans down there was that the antidote to materialism is generosity. The antidote, the, the cure, the medicine for materialism is generosity. And it sounds really good. It sounds like something you'd want to build a conference around. Until he and I got to, to talking and just like a light, light bulb, uh, Despicable Me fans, uh, <laughs> it's like light bulb. If materialism is a sin, which I think at an individual level and as a communal level, I think it's true of both. Like, it's a sin then the antidote is not generosity. The antidote is Christ. What helps us, what saves us, the medicine we need is Jesus, not generosity. But yet these imitative gospels get put forward all the time. It's just like, oh, you have envy. Oh, well, what we need to do is just we need to make you kinder with the people in your life. You know, and I think with the case of, of lust, it's just like, oh, well, you're experiencing lust. Don't do that. We'll, we'll just put you over here and just purity is your antidote. That will cure all the lust that you have. And I think those imitative gospels fall short of the reality in redemption, which this is a cross-filled life. This is a cross-filled life. You and I live a cross-filled filled life. Yes, it is a road of redemption that leads to glory. A road of redemption that we're on this path of sanctification leading to face to face with Jesus for all time. Yes. But it is a cross filled life. I want to turn our attention to Mark chapter 5 where we read the the story of a, a synagogue ruler whose daughter is ill. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with them, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and the the story kind of takes a a different road, but we'll pick it up in uh, 35 here. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher, Jesus, anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone, Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Now think of this. Put yourself in Jairus' shoes right here. Okay? He approaches Jesus believing That this healer, this teacher can make his sick daughter well. 
Since that time, since approaching Jesus, he's found out that his daughter has passed away and that all the people in his house that were there during this passing are now laughing at Jesus, the one he brought to heal his little girl. And the only thing he's been given is, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. And so as we flip the page, after he put them all out, Jesus took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. What a tremendous healing. Jesus raises this girl from the dead. It's fantastic. These are the kind of stories that we would lead a Sunday morning with. We would bring Talitha up here, have her stand and just say, Jesus healed her. She was dead and she's been made alive. And people would applaud. It would be an incredible work of God displayed before our very eyes. The reason I grab onto this story is because there's another Jairus familiar to some people at Hope. A little boy named Jairus Hintz. And he was stillborn. Not quite full term, but past the threshold. Where you would think this, this baby's going to be born. And as we were preparing to come to the memorial service for little Jairus, his parents, Mark and Meg, are been around Hope for a while. Mark's an elder here at Hope. I looked myself in the mirror as I was getting ready, and I shared with myself a phrase that I had shared with myself so many other times when I had experienced hard things in life. This was the phrase that I used when I was going through undergraduate school, when I was going through graduate school, when I was uh, getting married, when I was having kids, when I was uh, getting a house. It's, It's this phrase that says, it's a harder life, but a better life. Getting a college degree, hard life. Harder life, but better. Graduate degree, getting married, harder life, better life. That's in my mind how I was framing it. Having children, harder life, (laughs) better life. And as I was in the mirror looking at myself and preparing to go to this memorial service, I said, harder life, but better. And I thought to myself, No. Yes, this is going to be a harder life for Mark and Meg, but a better life? Are you kidding me? Wouldn't it be better to have their little boy? Wouldn't it be better to take their little boy home from the hospital and introduce him to his his sister, uh, Emma, and his brother, Hazen? Like, wouldn't that be the better life? Wouldn't the better life be him and his dad throwing the baseball around, someday having him join his dad on the church softball team? That's the better life. How can this be true? How can Jairus die? And since that time, I haven't used that phrase. It just rang so hollow that morning. And since that time, the phrase that's come to me, this is a cross 
filled life. Can God heal? Yes. Does he heal? Yes. Will he? Maybe. I don't know. The thing that he's promised in the scripture is that his spiritual healing is effective for you and for me. That he swallows your sin up on the cross and death with it. Because he raises from the dead three days later. So we can be assured that yes, his spiritual ability to overcome sin is unmatched, unrivaled. It has taken effect. It will come and result in glory. It will. But in this life, you will have pain. You will have struggle. It is a cross-filled life. So with lust, are you expecting to be just kind of set free from this? I heard this guy once say that he was set free. I told that guy, don't ever tell anybody else that. That's not been my experience as I've talked with numerous, countless men. This is a cross-filled life. This is a struggle. You might struggle with lust every day of your life from here on out. But thankfully, thankfully one day we will enter into an eternal day of glory. Some people overdo it and they expect that now. Here, Christian perfection, kind of this, this over-realized eschatology. Don't need to know what that means. Just that, like, let's make heaven later, now, here. And they want to do everything to kind of create this oasis, this Garden of Eden, now and here. Or too little. Some people don't ever believe that this is going to come. Or they have this kind of warped view of what heaven will be like. And, and I think the right category is a future and forever glory that will astound us. That the cross-filled life is worth traveling because of the future and forever glory. Look what it says in Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has, or for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the lot that you and I have. We have a cross-filled life, waiting patiently for this unbelievable hope that is to come. And on that day, all of the fighting, all the wrestling with lust, and with other struggles of life, will drop. That we in our mortality will step into immortality. We with perishable bodies will step into imperishable bodies. Incredible. There will be no lust, no struggle, no fighting. What a glory that awaits us. That is the gospel road. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. 
And then you do it again, creation, fall, redemption, and glory. And then there's a new temptation and you walk through this road, creation, fall, redemption, glory. You remind yourselves of what is true and what is legit so you don't get deceived into this infatuation with desires and lusts and lesser things than what God would have for you. You walk this road again and again. You preach this gospel to yourself again and again. And you guard yourselves about falling to the left or to the right. And you stick to that narrow roadway, that gospel road, creation, fall, redemption, glory. Use that as your paradigm. And if I might, I want to give one more admonition, which is to do this with other people. Don't go alone. The mind and heart with which we're trying to fight has brokenness because of the fall. You need other people. Steve has said often, sometimes we just have bad judgment. Oh, you have bad judgment? Just get good judgment. How do you get good judgment? Other people. (laughs) If you had good judgment, then you wouldn't have bad judgment. So other people, will you, will you consider sharing your struggle with someone else? Because I know that there are people who do gospel and community at Hope. They do small group, they do mentorship. But for some reason, this area may be hands off. Do not touch. I'm not going to share. Will you share? Will you be willing to open up to those you find trustworthy in your sphere there? Do it in community. Every road trip is better with people. I talked to an introvert after first. They're like, you might want to reframe that. I'm like, no! Every road trip, extrovert, every road trip is better with people. (laughs) We have the chance this morning um, to really apply, amazingly apply what Jesus asked of Jairus. Will we believe? Today, afresh, will we believe? What's in front of us is the bread and the cup. And this is a historical, something Jesus handed down to us. It's been alive in the church for thousands of years. And we get the chance to remember him, to say again, God, we believe in you. We believe in the sending of your son, in his life and his death for our sin so that we might live afresh, no longer enslaved to sin, but for a new master. Ah, At any point during the following signs, I want to invite you to come forward and and take a piece of bread. There's a a gluten-free option in the back, and there's a table, I believe, upstairs. Uh, There's people down front be willing to pray for you. This table represents the hope that we have in Christ. If you rip off a piece of bread, you're remembering His body being broken for you. And the cup signifies His blood being shed for you. So as you take this, you're doing it in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. He who had no sin became sin for us. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The fact that there's a gospel road at all is because of this beautiful table and what it represents. I'm going to have a chance. I'll invite the worship team forward. I'm going to pray. And then at any point during those songs, feel free to stand and worship uh, through song. Feel free to come and take the elements. Um, You can take them down front. You can pray with someone or you can take them back at your seat. Let me pray for us. God, right now, I want to ask you to help that person in the pew who just feels overwhelmed by the struggle. They walk in here feeling just darkness. God, will you help them to see 
a new dawn appearing through the gospel, a new light for them today, that they might walk this road of creation, fall, redemption, and glory, being reminded of what is true and legit in the world, recognizing they've perhaps been deceived the momentary pleasures of sin, but no more, God, reminding themselves of the beauty of the cross and the power, God. They are not beyond your reach. Your strength is stronger than death. The power of your gospel can, by your spirit, help them to overcome. Believe that, Jesus. Confirm that in their hearts and their minds today. God, for those who are here today, and lust isn't their biggest struggle, I pray that they would see in this gospel road, this this gospel paradigm of creation, fall, redemption, and glory, hope for the struggles that they do have, God. All of us come in here with struggles and challenges, sin. But you are faithful to meet us where we're at. You are faithful, God, that as we apply the gospel to our lives to bring us forward in this sanctification, this, this pathway closer and closer to Jesus. And God, may we worship you in this time to choose belief. Like Jairus, when circumstances were dire, that we would choose to believe you who make big, bold promises about your cross and redemption and about your glory, that we would worship you in fullness of truth and spirit today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.